Hello, and welcome back to MIMS Learning's Clinical Update podcast, providing some clinical learning for healthcare professionals. I'm Pat Anderson, and I'm joined today by Dawn Powell and Rihanna Nashman. So what have we got for you today? Like much of clinical practice, it's a glorious mixture of topics. And as usual, all the things we're talking about today are really important. We hope that by the time you finish listening to this episode, you'll feel better equipped to think about your management of some key conditions in primary care. And you can learn even more by visiting the MIMS Learning website to take some e-learning or coming to one of our live events. Later in this episode, we'll be asking GP Dr Pippin Singh about how he manages abnormal liver test results and what follows from that. And we'll be discussing three key points on the management of gout. But first, Dawn and Rhiannon will be discussing a learning module on how chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and lung cancer interrelate. So... As healthcare professionals are probably aware, lung cancer is a potential alternative diagnosis in someone with suspected COPD. For example, NICE recommends that when diagnosing COPD, GPs ask the patient whether they have coughed up blood, aka hemoptysis. As hemoptysis is not a common symptom of COPD, NICE state that an alternative diagnosis should be considered, i.e. lung cancer. So we actually have a great module on MIMS learning about the link between COPD and lung cancer, written by Dr. Daryl Cheng and lung cancer expert, Professor Sam Jaynes. The module discusses shared risk factors, screening and management options. So talking about risk factors, an obvious shared risk factor is tobacco smoke. Dr. Cheng and Professor Jaynes note that oxidative stress from tobacco smoke causes both inflammation and DNA damage, which can set in motion common pathogenetic pathways with both COPD and lung cancer. However, COPD itself is an independent risk factor for lung cancer. Studies show that the incidence of lung cancer is increased in people with COPD, and this is independent of smoking status. Therefore, screening for lung cancer in people with COPD may be beneficial. The UK lung cancer screening trial used a history of respiratory disease, including COPD, to help identify those at risk of lung cancer, and they did find a mortality benefit with lung cancer screening in this cohort. Regarding the management of coexisting COPD and lung cancer, the management of COPD is roughly the same whether lung cancer is present or not. However, the presence of COPD can affect the management of lung cancer. For example, COPD can increase the risk of complications with lung cancer surgery. So Rhiannon, you've had a look at the module. Did you have any questions? I did. What are the other shared risk factors for COPD and lung cancer, aside from smoking? Well, they may share genetic factors. Genome-wide association studies have found significant loci that are involved in both COPD and lung cancer. However, the exact shared pathways and mechanisms are not yet clear. You mentioned that screening for lung cancer in people with COPD may be beneficial. What are the latest recommendations on this? Well, in June 2023, the UK government announced plans to roll out a lung cancer screening programme Under this programme, people who are deemed to be at high risk of lung cancer based on their smoking history and other factors will be invited for CT scans every two years. This follows a successful pilot phase in which screening was performed in mobile units at accessible locations. That's great. I expect the rollout of lung cancer screening is welcome news for lots of healthcare professionals. 
And what are the recommendations for screening for COPD? So the evidence base currently does not support screening for COPD. In the module, though, Dr. Cheng and Professor James do suggest that lung cancer screening could also be used as an opportunity to screen for COPD. The 2022 Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease report acknowledges that screening using spirometry in the general population is controversial, but states it should be considered in patients with significant risk factors for COPD as it has a high diagnostic yield. What challenges are there for management of a patient who has a diagnosis of lung cancer and COPD? As mentioned, COPD can increase the risk of complications of lung cancer surgery. Additionally, lung function in COPD can also present anaesthetic challenges. However, video-assisted thoroscopic surgery in people with COPD is associated with shorter median length of hospital stays compared with open lobectomy and also seems to improve medium and five-year survival. Also, if clinically relevant, stereotactic ablative radiotherapy can be offered as an alternative if lobectomy is not appropriate because of the risk of complications. So um, thanks for discussing this module with me, Rhiannon. This module is part of a wider learning plan we have on COPD and comorbidities. Overseen by Dr. Richard Russell, the plan also has modules on COPD and mental well-being, COPD and obstructive sleep apnea, and COPD and CVD. Brilliant. Oh, thanks very much, Dawn and Rhiannon, for talking us through that very important module. It's part of our CPD offering on our website. And at the last count, we had 89 modules on respiratory topics. So do have a look at our respiratory page and see what learning appeals to you. Next, I'm meeting our experienced GP and module author, Dr. Pippin Singh, to talk about liver function tests and liver disease. So today I have with me Dr. Pippin Singh, who's a GP in Tynan Weir and an experienced GP trainer and educator. Welcome, Pippin. Hi, Pat. So Pippin is a regular writer, contributor, chair and speaker for MIMS Learning Modules, webinars and live events. He's written lots of modules for us and these have included a couple about liver disease, which is our topic today. You've done one on abnormal liver function tests and another around management of liver disease in primary care around end of life. So today we're hopefully providing some insights that might be helpful for GP practice. Firstly, Pippin, could you talk us through how frequently you encounter abnormal liver function tests and the questions that tend to go through your mind when you review those tests? Yeah, sure, Pat. Thanks for that. So I'm for what well, class full time GP, so I work at the sessions. And I, we have a population of about 13,000 at our surgery. So I probably see, I would say about one to two cases of abnormal LFTs a day. And that's me as an individual practitioner. So if you extrapolate that to my other colleagues, I have seven, eight or nine colleagues I work with. So we could be seeing sort of in a, somewhere in order of 15 to 20 abnormal uh, LFTs a day. That could be very mildly raised ALTs, which is often the commonest scenario. And the sorts of questions that I will tend to go through my mind will be, how abnormal are they? Has it been picked up before? And if so, what investigations have already been done? 
So it's very important to look through the record and see has that ALT been raised five years ago, 10 years ago? Has it improved? Has it not improved? And have a look and see what investigations have done in the sense of has there been any further blood work done? Has there been any ultrasound scans done? Has the patient been under the gastroenterologist before or a liver specialist before? And based on those things that you found, was there a plan as to what to do if these abnormalities were picked up again in the future? So I would then look at if there wasn't a historical issue, you would have to treat it as a new deranged liver function test. And then the sorts of things you'd be thinking about would be what sort of past medical history do they have? What medications do they take? Could I manage this with just a simple recheck in a couple of months' time? Or do I need to see this patient to evaluate them further? I was going to ask next about the risk factors. Are there risk factors for liver disease that you'd be looking out for to help you focus and put into context the results that you're seeing? Yeah, so common risk factors that we would look at would be someone's um, body mass index. So that's their height in relation to their weight. Are they a diabetic? Do they have a history of any tattoos, blood transfusions, maybe any intravenous drug use? Because that we know can increase the risk of hepatitis, which might be hepatitis B or hepatitis C. And that obviously can be a cause of abnormal uh, liver function tests in particular a hepatic cause of abnormal liver function. So that might be a raised ALT, a raised AST, which is, tends to be more commoner with those viruses. We'd look at medications, because lots of medications that patients are on can affect liver function tests. And many GPs who will be listening today will be fully aware of the commoner drugs that we tend to use that can affect liver function tests, such as antibiotics. We do know that there's certain disease-modifying drugs that patients are on can affect liver function tests, and that's why we monitor liver function tests for those who are on DMATS. Looking at past medical history again, so is there a history of malignancy in the past? So do we need to be worried about whether that malignancy is possibly returned? and is affecting the liver. And obviously risk factors for liver disease being alcohol as well. So looking at alcohol intake. And so how much of the time is alcohol misuse a factor in what you're seeing? So it will depend on your your practice population. And the more deprived areas you may work in will tend to see a correlation with, or a bigger correlation with, increased alcohol use but that said it can happen in any population so we all as gps need to be very aware of how much people are drinking in the context of abnormal LFTs. so i would say it's fairly common and it's important if we sort of think that someone may be overusing alcohol we sort of probe that a bit further and there's different questionnaires that we can use to screen for 
sort of has what we call hazardous drinking. So there's the cage questionnaire, which is a four point questionnaire. And then there's a more detailed audit questionnaire, which is a, a 10 point questionnaire. But a lot of GPs will have a sixth sense about this pattern. And a lot of people will know when someone might be misusing alcohol or have certain clues from the records that might suggest someone's misusing alcohol. Also, if someone's telling you that they're maybe drinking, the chances are that they might be drinking a little bit more. So it's worth, as I say, exploring. And is it more social binge drinking? Or is it sort of more regular use on an evening basis or so forth? And if we get a feel that someone might be misusing alcohol or drinking possibly a little bit more than they should, then we have got some screening questions as that we can use. So there's the CAGE questionnaire, which is a four-point questionnaire, and then there's the more detailed 10-point audit questionnaire that we can use as well if needed. And we can either do that in consultation if time allows, which often it doesn't these days because we don't have the lengthiest of consultations. So it might be something we need to give to patients to take away and bring back to us for us to review. So in answer to your question, yes, we do need to be thinking about alcohol a lot and remembering that the WH very clear guidance on in 14 units for a man and 14 units for a woman as well on a week basis. But then we need to factor in things like binge drinking, social drinking, and that sort of thing. So we do know, for example, binge drinking poses its own risks as well. And that will be classed as drinking any more than four units in one sitting. Okay, thank you. So what's the distinction between alcoholic and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Yeah, so the disease process itself is quite similar. But as it says on the tin, alcoholic fatty liver disease is predominantly down to overuse of alcohol, whereas non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is often down to raised BMI. But not always. And we do know there are a proportion of people who have fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease who are slightly more on the thin side or would class as a normal BMI. So we do have to just bear that in mind. But generally speaking, it's alcoholic versus non-alcoholic is those that drink more versus where it's more weight related. And non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a manifestation of metabolic syndrome. And that often is purely down to diet or poor diet or diets which are high in fat, lack of exercise and raised BMI. I think I've come across different terminology for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease being referred to as metabolic associated steatotic liver disease. Is the terminology changing or would GPs just still go with using the terms that they know? Yes, I think at the moment there's no immediate change to the terminology. I'm aware of that change as well, Pat, and I believe it's only just happened quite recently. And something was published in one of the hepatology about that. I think for the time being in UK general practice or UK practice, it will stay as fatty liver disease, whether it be alcoholic or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But watch this space. But I do think that is likely to cause some possible confusion if there is a change in the near future. 
and it will require a lot of education about why there's a change, how we then code it, because that could have implications for management when we're still getting our head around the management of alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I think as it stands, there's no plan to change the terminology that I'm aware of anyway. You said that GPs are still getting their heads around managing the two types of liver disease that we've just discussed. To what extent is liver disease managed by GPs and what are the cornerstones of management? Yeah, and I think when I said get our head around, things have changed a lot in the last few years. So historically, we didn't really do much with fatty liver disease. Apart from people to maybe improve their diets, lose weight, etc. Whereas now we do know there are a lot more trials going on in secondary care that we can refer people into. We're doing a lot more investigation. So that might involve calculating the FIB4 score and then potentially referring patients on for a fibro scan, which looks at the stiffness of the liver. And if they're falling into what we call F3 or F4, then we would be seeking advice and guidance from hepatology to see if the patient might need a biopsy, liver biopsy, or being included into a trial for some new drugs for liver disease, or whether the hepatologist would be wanting to be considered some, something different that we can't do in primary care. But in answer to your question, we manage a large proportion of fatty liver disease. And I would suspect we probably managed the most of it. In all honesty, I couldn't give you a number, but because the majority of it tends to be simple fatty liver disease, we'll put the code onto the record and often give patients advice about what to do in terms of managing it, which goes back to the things that I've already talked about. More complex liver disease, such as say autoimmune hepatitis, viral hepatitis, something like primary sclerosing, cholangitis, will all be managed in a specialist care setting. Although some shared care may be needed depending on what drugs the hepatologists use and whether monitoring is needed on an annual basis. But often we'll get some feedback from the hepatologist about what they want from us in primary care in order to manage that patient. And I suppose from our point of view, it's also important to keep disease registers up to date. So if someone's got fatty liver disease, ensure it's coded on the record. Is it non-alcoholic, is it alcoholic? It might be that we need to, or we're asked to repeat a fibro scan, say in three years time. The problem with a lot of this at the moment is that resources are very stretched, as you know, and we're being asked to do more and more from secondary care. And it is getting more and more difficult to follow a lot of these things up. So it is important that if we are asked to do it, that we have a very robust system in place for following patients up. So that might be a particular diary entry to say this patient needs a fibrous scan, and then we can recall them in three years, two years, whatever it might be. And also reminding patients as well that they'll need a scan in three years. So put a diary entry in your own phone or in your own diary and prompt us as well in case you don't hear from us about that. Now, you've also written a module for us around end-of-life care in hepatic failure. Could you talk through a few of the key aspects of that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's important that you understand the complications of liver disease, help you manage symptoms and help educate carers or relatives or the patients in order to what to look out for. 
So liver disease will, obviously the liver is responsible for a number of things. We call it the powerhouse of the body and it's responsible for blood clotting, infection management, toxin clearance, drug metabolism, glucose metabolism. So a lot of the complications of liver disease, so when the liver goes wrong for whatever reason and starts to fail, cause problems with the things that I've just mentioned there. So patients will be at increased risk of upper GI bleeds. There'll be increased risk of developing jaundice when they've got too much bilirubin in their blood. There'll be increased risk of developing confusion. And that's often due to a buildup of ammonia in the bloodstream if the liver's failing. Because the liver is responsible for a lot of medicine or drug metabolism, we'll need to change the dosing around certain agents. So we'll need to be slightly careful with the dosing around opiates, for example, like morphine and codeine. Uh, paracetamol dosing might need to be adjusted. We'd need to avoid things like constipation. Because we know that if patients are constipated with liver disease, that does increase the risk of what we call encephalopathy. So all of these things will be important when managing someone who's end of life, particularly in hepatic failure. Other things that people can develop is ascites, where peritoneum fills up with fluid, and we might need to manage that with potentially diuretics to help offload some of that fluid. But in certain situations, if it's becoming extremely problematic and the patient's wishes are that they want that managed in hospital, then they might need to be sent in for an acidic drain where that fluid's drained off by a gastroenterology team. So all of that is important that we put it in the um, emergency healthcare plan and cover all of those bases. Really. And finally, could you talk about how you've increased your confidence in dealing with liver disease in your practice? Yeah, so I did a liver job as a foundation doctor many years ago, back in 2006. So I spent four months on a gastroenterology ward, managing lots of patients with complex liver problems, gastroenterological problems. I tend to gain my experience from doing that job. And I have seen palliative patients firsthand within the care home setting, particularly because I'm a care home lead in my surgery to do a regular ward round and not too uncommonly have patients who have liver disease secondary to metastatic cancer. And they'll be thinking about making sure I put some of the situations that I've just discussed there in an emergency healthcare plan. So for example, warning the, the patient, if appropriate, either got capacity or the relatives and the carers that these patients will be at slightly more complications because of their liver involvement. So they might be at increased risk of the upper GI bleeds. And obviously that can be a very scary thing to see. Mm. And how do we manage those? So it might be a case of using black towels, for example, particularly if the management is not to send someone to hospital or their wishes or they don't want to go back into hospital. So black towels, we know, absorb blood better. It looks less scary to patients, relatives, and to carers. It might be making sure that their bowels are moving regularly, so they're on a regular laxative, avoid the constipation that I was talking about. Making sure their doses are changed, as I mentioned, so reduced dose of paracetamol, maybe reduced dose of codeine and morphine. So I'm quite, I'm exposed to that relatively regularly within my care home setting. So I would say that's increased my confidence in managing this cohort of patients over the years. Thank you for sharing it and thank you very much for joining us today, Pippin. 
It's been great having you with us on the podcast to kind of complete the set of all the learning activities that you've done for us over the years. And we obviously look forward to seeing you soon at our events. You'll be with us in Liverpool on 29th of November. And at that event, you'll be chairing one of the streams, which will provide mixed clinical topics and the usual packed day of clinical learning for GPs. And obviously, we look forward very much to seeing Pippin's name on more of our learning modules on our website as well in the future. Don't forget to check the modules that we've talked about and you'll find a list next to the podcast of some of the things that we've been talking about to do with liver disease. So it just remains for me to thank Pippin so much once again for joining us and sparing the time to talk about this important topic. Thank you very much, Pat. Thanks for having me. We're back with our regular key points segment. And this time we'd like to bring you three key points on the management of gout. I'm lucky not to have had this condition myself, but I hear it's very painful. And fairly recently, in June 2022, NICE issued updated guidance on gout, which has relevance for GPs and other healthcare professionals. So we have a guidance module authored by Dr. Pippin Singh, who we just interviewed, and this analyses the guidance and provides a rundown of what GPs should do differently in their practice. So Dawn, what's our first point? So our first point is that the 2022 NICE guidance is unlikely to change the management of acute attacks of gout as the recommendations reflect what GPs are probably already doing clinical practice. Thus, the following steps will be likely familiar to GPs. So first line, offer an NSAID or colchicine or a short course of an oral corticosteroid, though GPs should first take into account any comorbidities and any co-prescriptions of medication. Patients should also be advised about the possibility of diarrhoea with colchicine. If you do prescribe an NSAID, consider adding a PPI. However, if NSAIDs or colchicine are unsuitable or not tolerated, consider an intra-articular or intramuscular corticosteroid injection. You can also refer for the initiation of an interleukin-1 inhibitor if necessary, but only if NSAIDs, colchicine, corticosteroids are unsuitable or not tolerated. And finally, recommend the use of ice packs to alleviate pain alongside medication. So that's the first point. The principles for management of an acute attack are much the same as they ever were, and the guidance solidifies this. So what's our second point, Rhiannon? The second point is that because NICE considers the current standard of care for gout to be suboptimal, it suggests that GPs should be more proactive about follow-up after an attack. It says you should consider assessing urate levels six weeks after an attack and should address cardiovascular risk and screen for chronic kidney disease, CKD. It also recommends pursuing a treat-to-target strategy for gout for some patients. For example, those who have problematic flares those with CKD stage 3 to 5, and other high-risk patients. For these patients, GPs should start low-dose uric acid-lowering therapy, ULT, and check uric acid levels monthly. Then you should increase doses, aiming for the target uric acid level, and once that's reached, keep reviewing annually. Thanks, Rhiannon. So the second key point is that GPs are expected to take a more proactive approach to the follow-up of patients with gout and to use a treat-to-target approach for those who are at higher risk. It may be a challenge to find time to do this, but it sounds as though NICE feels it would be beneficial. 
So thirdly, what else can we glean from this module? The third point I'd like to make is that where uric acid lowering therapy or ULT is concerned, that an agent called febuxostat can now be used as first line ULT as its price is equivalent to allopurinol. And the latter allopurinol is what Dr. Singh says that most GPs are more familiar with. When it was launched, Fibuxostat was described by our sister publication, MIMS, as the first new gout treatment for 40 years, which sounds encouraging. However, Dr. Singh points out that knowledge of Fibuxostat and confidence in its use will vary between primary care physicians. His module reminds GPs to take into account comorbidities and other medications, and that NICE says allopurinol should be used if there's a significant history of cardiovascular disease. So those are our three key points. Firstly, that NICE's recommendations for management of an acute gout attack are much the same as existing clinical practice. Secondly, after an acute attack, GPs are now expected to take a more proactive approach to follow-up of patients and to assess their cardiovascular and renal health. And thirdly, it's now recommended that GPs can prescribe different uric acid-lowering medication first line, though not all may feel confident to do so. Please do check out our guidance update on gout for more information. And this guidance module is one of a whole suite on the MIMS Learning website, providing analysis by GPs of what's new and what's relevant to you in any given piece of national guidance. Thanks very much to Rhiannon and Dawn, and thanks for listening. We look forward to joining you next time for more insights from our very large array of learning modules.